You really have to love those words that we read earlier from the psalmist, that the gods of the nations are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. You really couldn't get any greater contrast. Uh, the, the gods of the nations, as the psalmist is declaring there, are made of the things of earth, things of the dirt, made of stone and, and metals and, and uh, wood. But God made those stars that we see so distant from the ground of the earth. So that's the God whom we come together to worship this morning. Uh, we're not just here hanging out. We're not just here going through our weekly rhythm. We are here to worship the God who made the heavens, whom the Bible calls the living God, as opposed to the gods of the nations, the gods that we are tempted to worship even uh, intangible gods or maybe material gods that we have in our culture. These gods are mere idols, worthless, futile, perishing, but our God made the heavens. And we come to worship him this morning. And now through preaching. And here we are, the last sermon on Romans. So if you would go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 16, verses 25 to 27. It has been right at two years since we started Romans. And as typically is the case when we come to the end of a book, some, uh, no doubt, are wanting to stay here longer and maybe start over. Probably not very many of you wanting to just go back and start over. Uh, and some are like, okay, well, let, let's go on. But what we recognize is that every word of this Bible that we hold from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation is God's word. And so wherever we go from here, we are going to Exodus, but wherever we go uh, from here, we know that the Lord will use his word to glorify Christ, and to equip us for every good work. And I hope that that has been the case for us over the last two years, that you can look back and see uh, ways that God has used his word as we've uh, built ourselves here corporately on the exposition of Romans, uh, ways that you have seen God use Romans to equip you, to assure you, to challenge you, to sanctify you. As Jesus prayed in John 17 to the Father that we would be sanctified by his truth and his word is truth. It has been a joy to go through Romans at, at, with this kind of level of intensity for the last two years. And we have seen a lot of God's truth displayed. And, and you know, we've, we've seen, I think, a clearer understanding of the gospel maybe than we had before as you've gone through in the last two years. Maybe your understanding of the gospel is, has become more robust or deeper. The Lord has filled out for you what it is that the apostles preached as we see this one great instance of the apostolic preaching. All are under sin and in need of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. We were made right with God by faith, not by our works. That was the big idea of chapters one to four. You'll remember a while ago, those four chapters, that was the big idea. Being justified by faith, we are reconciled to God, united to Christ, freed from sin, death, and the law, given new life in Christ, and assured of future glory. That was chapters five to eight in a nutshell. And we see the end of chapter eight over there on the wall. We, uh, at the beginning of, of every new series, I try to go through and select two passages that really stand out in the book so that we can put them up on the wall. And that just orients us as we think about uh, where our minds ought to be. As we walk into this place, we see God's word there on the wall. And uh, this end of Romans 8 was really a mountain peak as Paul is going through explaining his gospel. And so we see it uh, is the capstone of what I just said there in summary for chapters 5 to 8. God has partially hardened Israel and is bringing in the Gentiles grafting them into his people, but he will one day restore his people, Israel, to himself. And he has done all of this throughout history, 
according to his sovereign election and to display the glory of his mercy. That's what we found in chapters 9 through 11, which is the third major chunk of Paul's letter to the Romans. And now as Christians, we offer our bodies to God as a living holy and acceptable sacrifice rather than being conformed to this world, to the spirit of this age, which is under the sway of the evil one, the course of this world. Rather than being conformed to this world, we are transformed by the renewal of our minds. And this results in manifold expressions of love, submission to authority, holiness, and unity among believers. That's what we saw Uh, From the beginning of chapter 12, as chapter 12 makes that transition, turns from, okay, there's the theology, there's the gospel unpacked. Now, so what? What does it look like to live out of the gospel? And that's what we have found from chapter 12 onward. These are the four major sections of Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul's most extensive presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is my prayer for us as we have this very last sermon on Romans before we move on? Uh, a few weeks we'll have uh, Trey will come, uh, will preach to us from Philippians. He'll continue the work that he's been doing there. And we will have, during our elder retreat, uh, we will have Tony Carter from East Point Church will come uh, and he will preach to us uh, over that weekend. But what is it that we should do now that we've come to the end of Romans. Well, here's my big idea prayer. My prayer for us, we've spent two years, and you might think, man, we've had so much of Romans. It's just been Romans, 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 Romans. And this really is my prayer for us, is that we would all see this as just the beginning, as really just scratching the surface of this great letter. That it would fuel that this time that we have had in Romans for the last two years would would simply fuel for us a lifetime of meditation on this most majestic articulation of God's gospel in Christ. That the Lord would just take this last two years and not create in you a mindset that says, okay, I've done Romans, we've studied Romans. Romans. I've got a pretty good idea of what's in Romans. Now let me just move on with my mind. My prayer for us is that that will not happen, but that you will just see the last two years as chapter one in a lifetime of studying and meditating on this letter. This New Testament epistle that has had the greatest impact among all the, arguably among all the books of the Bible, the greatest impact on the great movements of the history of the Christian church. Paul's letter to the Romans. The title for the sermon this morning is The Apostles' Praise. Beginning in chapter 15, verse 14. Paul gives his readers an extended conclusion. That's where we've been. I said that the last major section begins in chapter 12 and onwards. Now, if we wanted to sort of uh, really line it out, we would say that in chapter 15, verse 14, Paul moves from the main uh, portion of his letter, to the, from the body of his letter, to the concluding section, just like we would say that the first 15 verses and even maybe the first 17 verses are introductory, and then we get the body of the letter. So beginning in chapter 15, verse 14, Paul moves into his conclusion. The longest that we find from Paul, this is quite an extensive conclusion to a letter. And so far in this section, we've looked at his ministry, how Paul understands his apostolic work, his apostolic role, his travel plans, his prayer requests, his greetings, and his care for the believers there in Rome. We really get a lot of insight, as I said last week, into the heart of the apostle. In the beginning of the letter and at the end of the letter, we see, we see an apostle. We see an apostle who cares not just about getting across his message, not just about getting across some points, but we see an apostle who really does deeply care about people. He really cares about souls. As he says elsewhere, he cares that Christ would be formed in God's people. That is Paul's 
ministry. That is Paul's great work, that Christ would be formed in the elect of God. Today, as we come to this final few verses, we come to Paul's praise. Paul ends in praise. Of course, the apostle ends the letter by praising God. We've recently seen that the mission is what drives Paul. We've talked a lot about that in the last few weeks, that that even in the greetings, you get little indicators, little hints that that what Paul is doing, even in greeting, it's, it's not disingenuous. It's not as though he's just, he's just saying these names, dropping them out there in order to do what I'm about to say. But he really does care about these people. He really is greeting these people. But we saw in that list of names that Paul is also concerned to solidify the integrity and authenticity and truthfulness of his gospel among the gospel he preaches among the people there in Rome. He's trying to show his readers that he has many who have served alongside of him who are there within the church in Rome and who are even having believers meet for church for worship in their home. We saw last week how Paul mentions a number of believers who are with him, co-workers. These are people who would have been known, some of them, by the believers in Rome. So we've seen that the mission that Paul would, would gain the support of the Romans so that he could go and share the gospel in Spain. He sees through the Romans, if you will, to the unsaved peoples of Spain. And what he writes is driven by the mission. The mission to make Christ known among the nations as he is the apostle to the Gentiles. But today we see what drives even that So we've seen that what drives all of that Paul is doing is this mission to make Christ known among peoples, that peoples would come to bow to King Jesus, that people would come to have their hearts changed by the living God and have new life in the Spirit. But what drives that mission itself, at the base, at the core, at the top of Paul's list of priorities is one thing, one thing that the apostle is consumed with, that the apostle is fixated on, and that is simply put, the glory of God. The glory of God is what drives everything in the apostle's heart and in his work, in his mission, in his living, the praise of the eternal God. And so it should not surprise us at all that this is where Paul ends his letter, all these things that he's had to say. And, you know, it, it, as Paul is writing this, Paul is worshiping. He's not just conveying information. You get this sense from him. He will erupt in praise. We've seen that through Romans. He's just writing and writing. He's erupting in praise as the, as the Spirit of God is inspiring Paul in writing these things down. We see his heart just bubbling up with worship as he is writing. So it should not surprise us that the last word is all glory be to God. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. Chapter 16, verses 25 to 27. This is the word of God. It is perfect and profitable for his people. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. What a fitting way to end his letter. The sounds of heaven. The sounds of the new heaven and the new earth. The praises of our great God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his grace now as we are uh, continuing our worship service through preaching and through the hearing of preaching. Father, we... 
Thank you for this opportunity to be here. We thank you for time to gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ on the day uh, he was risen, on the Lord's day. Father, we thank you for the atoning death of our Savior. We thank you for his blood, which covers us, which saves us from the wrath to come. We thank you, Father, that through the blood of Jesus, the destroyer will not overtake us. As we see in Exodus, Lord, we, we see the power of the blood pointing forward to Christ. We thank you, Father, that Jesus has covered us and that in him we have been raised and seated with him in the heavenly places. We thank you, Father, that we will reign with him forever. Lord, that we will judge angels How unfathomable that is to our minds. Father, here we are this morning, just ordinary people, gathered in an ordinary place. Lord, we we understand that what is happening here today is of immense significance, Lord, as we worship you. That angels are desiring to look into this. that, That there is praise in heaven as your people praise you. Father, we ask that you would guide the rest of the service this morning, that uh, your word would be clearly taught and clearly understood. Father, that you would use it to bring a final word on this letter to the Romans. Lord, we pray that our time over the last two years would bear much fruit in the years and decades to come in our hearts and the way we live and the way we parent, the way we are Husbands and wives, the way we work, the way we evangelize, the way we do church. Father, that we would be informed by your word. We thank you for Paul's letter to the Romans. We thank you for all that it means to us. All that it has meant to so many. Think of Augustine and Martin Luther and John Bunyan and so many others. Lord, all that you have done in the history of your people through these 16 chapters of precious words, we thank you for them. May we continue to devote ourselves to these, to this apostolic teaching. As the earliest Christians did in the temple courts, may we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and to praying and fellowshipping together around your word. We thank you for this time to, to be instructed today and we ask that your spirit would be present with us and would work to penetrate our hearts with the word which he inspired. In Jesus' name, amen. So in these climactic verses, Paul offers a three-part praise to the only wise God through Jesus Christ. And it's interesting the language that he uses because we find praises and various doxologies in various places. And Paul's words here are meaningful. It's significant. It's not just a, uh, Paul's got a, a bucket of doxologies. You know, he's got like a little satchel filled with doxologies. And he gets to the end of the letter and he just pulls one out and plops it on the end. But the word choices here are significant for us. And so what we find is a three part praise to this only wise God through Jesus Christ. And those are going to be our points for this morning. So you can look up there on the screen. So here they are. All glory to the God who can establish. All glory to the God who controls history. And all glory to the God who calls sinners. That's where Paul leaves us as he walks away with the final pin stroke of Tertius. And he gives this letter over to Phoebe, to deliver to the Romans. So let's look first at all glory to the God who can establish. Look just now at the beginning of verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. We'll just stop there for now. As Paul concludes his letter, there are a lot of things he could praise God for. I mean, you know, just think about all the ground that he has covered 
and, and how, how, how tightly packed the truth that Paul has given us in Romans is. I mean, oftentimes you, you get like just, just a verse and it just keeps unfolding and you have all these phrases and you get a paragraph and you have all these interrelated clauses. I mean, it, not only do we have all of this material in the, in the length of this letter in terms of how many words there are, but there's the density, the saturation with which Paul writes. There are many things after having written all that he's written in Romans that he could praise God for. And we remember how he concluded his theological section with praise in chapter 11. Remember as Paul moves from explicating his theology to getting it down into the Christian's life from that transition from the end of chapter 11 to the beginning of chapter 12. This is what we read. Chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You know, I I remember we were going through that portion. It just struck me as amazing that it's not as though Paul got to the end of verse 32. He's not writing in verses, but he got to the end of the content of verse 32. And he says, okay, this would be a good place to insert a doxology before I move on to the practical. I don't think that's what's happening. Paul just erupts, as I said before, in that kind of praise. That's how he ends chapter 11. That's where Paul's mind is after considering the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in salvation history. Paul has just explained for three chapters the the interrelationship of Jews and Gentiles in God's plan of salvation throughout history, and, and he cannot help but to go there. That's where his mind goes, to that kind of praise, to those words of praise. And I encouraged us all back then, you know, maybe that passage 9 through 11, you just got kind of bogged down in it. You know, it's not as immediately practical, perhaps, as as Romans 6, or not as immediately practical as uh, Romans 12, or other portions. And so we're going through 9 through 11, all all this talk about the circumcised and uncircumcised, about Jews and Gentiles. And what I tried to encourage us to think then is, if that's where Paul's mind is, with that kind of doxology and that kind of praise, when he gets to the end of that topic, that's a topic worth spending time on. That's a topic worth spending time on in your devotional life, in your private time of prayer. If you want those sorts of words to erupt out of your soul. Well, that's where Paul's mind was there. Here in chapter 16, at the end of his letter, Paul's praise comes after discussing unity, after reminding the believers how much he wants to see them, After greeting so many of them by name and after warning them to remain faithful to the truth. Remember, that's what that's what's on Paul's mind as he comes to the end of of, to the as he comes to this doxology, as he comes to the end of chapter 16, we have to consider what are the themes that he's been dealing with in the lead up to this. And after all of these things, it should not surprise us that his praise to God begins. With God's ability to strengthen. God's ability to establish Christians. The God whom Paul praises. The God to whom all glory is due. Is the God who can strengthen us. You know maybe this morning you just feel incredibly weak. Or maybe this morning, instead of feeling established, strengthened, firmly fixed, you, you really feel like you're just sort of wobbling around, unstable in the Christian life. Be encouraged that this is where Paul ends, by praising the God who can make you not to wobble, who can make you strong in Jesus Christ, 
who indeed has the power to do this in each and every one of us. We are not just to be thrown upon the waves, tossed to and fro. We're not dangling in the wind like a wind chime. We are fixed in Jesus Christ with a heavenly Father who has all the power to make us strong in Jesus Paul doesn't just care about making converts. He wants those converts to be firm and fixed in the truth. This is not just superficial evangelism. This is not just adding up the numbers of people who'd prayed a prayer or who went through the waters of baptism. This is about deep discipleship. This is about people coming to really follow King Jesus. People coming to submit themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Trusting in the depth of his atoning sacrifice for sin. Being filled with his spirit. Walking in newness of life. That's Paul's concern. That's Paul's desire because all of the disciples moving from Christ's great commission are their desire is to make disciples. Not merely to gain converts, to get mental assent to a series of truths or to a, a philosophy or a religious way of life or a moral code. Their desire under the lordship of Christ and his command is to make disciples and that's what we see here he is praising god who can do that the god who is able that's where he began his letter in chapter 1 verse 11 for i long to see you that i may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you and then he goes on to say but let me be clear i'm not just coming to you so that so that i can give to you but i also recognize that i can receive from you that we can be mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine as he goes on to say in the next verse so both at the beginning of the letter and at the end of the letter we see the the heart of the apostle his pastoral concern that the people not only be in christ but that they be firmly established in christ But this strengthening work of God, it does not just come out of thin air. God doesn't just drop strengthening and being established. He doesn't just drop that in our laps. That's not how it works. It accords with something. It is attached and flows out of something. So notice what Paul says in the text. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, he doesn't just put the end there. The comma doesn't fall there. That's not where he ends the thought. To him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. This strengthening happens in conformity with and by means of the gospel that Paul was commissioned to preach. It's not his gospel in the sense that it originated from him It's his gospel in the sense that it is the gospel that God gave him, commissioned him to go and preach. It is the very gospel he has just laid out in Romans. This could be translated according to my gospel, that is the proclamation about Christ. Paul's not uh, dividing these out into two things as the word and would suggest. My gospel on the one hand and then also on the other hand over here, the preaching of Jesus Christ. Rather, he's saying, my gospel, even the preaching about Christ. So how does God strengthen or establish his people? How is God going to strengthen you, Christian? You come here wobbly? You come here feeling tossed to and fro? You come here feeling weak? How is it? That God is going to establish you, to strengthen you. And the answer is singular and it is simple. It is the Christ-centered gospel. That's the only means of being strengthened for us Christians. The Christ-centered gospel. It's not a set of resolutions. It's not our own willpower. It's not our own pursuit of a set of virtues. It's not getting a new schedule or taking on a a series of new disciplines 
or whatever. Those are some of the practical outworkings and means that God uses in our lives to conform us to Christ through the gospel. But it is the gospel itself, the message of Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, raised, exalted for sinners, giving his spirit, saving us from the wrath of God and coming again to take us unto himself. It is that gospel that feeds our Christian lives. It's that gospel that makes us strong and that establishes us in all of our weakness. So consider this. To what extent do you immerse yourself in the apostles' teaching? Think about that for a moment. What would that look like for you, Christian? To immerse yourself in the apostles' teaching. What do you do with that 10 minutes that you get between jobs at work? What do you do with that 30 minutes or so, or maybe three minutes that you get after the kids go to bed before you go to bed, or whatever it is? What do you do with that time? What do you do with that time in the morning? What do you do with all those cracks? We talk about how we don't have any time. That is rubbish. We have so much time. We waste our time. That's why we have no time. We immerse ourselves in the world. We immerse ourselves in our own pleasures and our own comforts. We immerse ourselves in our own entertainments rather than the apostolic teaching. And we cry out to God, and we grumble against God. Why am I so weak? Why am I so wobbly? Why is my Christian life in such disarray? God will strengthen us through his gospel. Netflix and YouTube and whatever you're reading watching, thinking about, spending your time on will not strengthen you in your Christian life. But the gospel of Jesus Christ can and will. Take God at his word. Take God at his word and be strengthened in the message about Jesus Christ. Remember at the beginning, chapter one, verse three, the gospel is concerning his son. The gospel is all about Jesus. The gospel is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Apart from that, there is no growth of any lasting substance for the Christian. But what does this establishing look like? 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 12 to 13 May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish, the same Greek word here, so that he may strengthen or establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. You know, being established is not just about knowledge, You think, how is it that I can come to be established or strengthened? I need to know more things. I need to read more books. I need to take in more Bible content. Just maybe, just more more content. I need more information. That That is how I am going to be strengthened. No, being established is not just about knowledge. As we see here, it is about love and holiness and perseverance in the knowledge of the truth. Love, holiness, and perseverance. That's what it looks like to be established. But it is also about being protected from the evil one. Remember that Paul has just told the Romans that God will soon crush Satan under their feet with all of his divisive lies and false teachers and teaching, being established means being fortified against the evil one. And so we read in 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. You know, a part of the problem is we really don't think we're in a, a battle. 
We just can't see it. Uh, Satan is so good at making us feel like we're not in the midst of a battle at all. Everything's just fine. Just keep rolling along. We are in the midst of an intense warfare, in the midst of an intense battle that we cannot see, raging around us in the hearts of those whom we love and in our very own hearts, a battle for our hearts. We have a real enemy. This enemy is not bound in a pit. This enemy is out like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And all of his army of demons, yes, as Christians, we believe in unseen spirits. We believe in the devil and demons. We believe in angels And we believe in the eternal, invisible, infinite God who created them all. We have a real enemy, and we need to be strengthened against him. We may not feel like we need any strength against him. We're doing quite fine. The moment, Christian, that you think you're doing well, you're doing fine, is the moment you've already been unsettled. It's the moment that the enemy has already gotten his grip on you. But we're not to be terrified of this enemy. We are to take heart that God can and will strengthen us against him and ultimately will crush his nasty head under our feet. That's what God has done. That's what God can do. And that is what God will do. And so we take heart. We're not afraid of Afraid of evil spirits, we're not afraid of Satan. We, in Christ Jesus, recognize that he is far above. He has placed his foot upon them all. So we take heart. The second part of Paul's praise, our second point is, all glory to the God who controls history. All glory to the God who controls history. Look at the rest of verse 25 through 26. This gospel that Paul preaches that concerns Jesus Christ is according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. You might be thinking, what? This is a set of phrases that leaves us feeling a little cross-eyed. This is a great example of sometimes how Paul writes. He just loses himself in all of this truth. And then we have to work it out. We've got to pull it apart. We've got to untangle it. We've got to understand what it is that he's saying. That's one of the things that amazed me as I, as I was kind of in college and started moving towards the thought of, of uh, going to seminary and as I was, I was experiencing uh, subjectively and through God's people a call to ministry. One of the things that, that was amazing me at the time is how many commentaries there are on all the biblical books. And even when I started uh, this series on Romans, you know, I, I started to figure out, okay, what is gonna, what's going to be the body of commentaries that I'm going to consult and, and some that I'm going to read very carefully and some that I'm going to consult here and there and then others that will just be on the shelf maybe for a consultation or whatever. And I'm thinking, all of these comments, some of them a thousand, I said this at the beginning, a thousand pages of commentary on Romans. And that's just one. There are 2,000 years of commentators who have been wrestling with and interpreting just Romans. And let's throw in there John. And then let's throw in Ephesians and Revelation and so on and so forth. It is immense. And so we get phrases like this just piled up and we have to pull them together. As we often see with Paul, he has woven a lot of material into a tight space. But these words are filled with Wonder, And they're meant, I think, they're piled up in that way, I think also, to give us that sense of just being awestruck. Like, whoa, 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 as we read them. Since this portion, portion of text is a doxology or a praise to God, our eyes should first fall on what these phrases say about God himself. 
So let's identify that first because we, we understand in context this is a doxology. It's about praising God. And so what is it that, that Paul is here praising about God? And here God is said to be the eternal God and the God who commands. Notice that. He's the eternal God and the God who commands. As God over time, he controls time. We're so bound by time. God is over time. As the God who spoke all things into existence, he commands the movements of history. You can't help but to read this when it talks about God's command. You can't help but to see Genesis 1 where God just says, let there be light. There's no argument. There's no argument from darkness. There's no argument from the lack of light. There's no no argument from anywhere. God commands and it is. He's the sovereign Lord of all. As he said, let there be light, so too he commands the movements of history. God is totally in control of this world right now. He's totally in control of what's happening in China, what's happening between Russia and the Ukraine. He's entirely in control of what's happening in our political order, all the things that have gone on in the last two years. God is the sovereign Lord of history. Christians are never those who quake under the pressures of history. We are those who recognize that God is sovereignly over all. He is the God of history. He commands over history. And specifically here, Paul is concerned with salvation. He is concerned with redemptive history. And that message that Paul preaches is in accordance with what the eternal God has commanded within history. The gospel that Paul preaches is according to what God has revealed and commanded. With the coming of Christ and the preaching of the apostles, God has now brought to light or revealed or made known what was previously veiled. The mystery of salvation through Christ. Of Jew and Gentile together in one body. Of Christ and his body, the church. All of this is now put on clear display. What was veiled in the Old Testament before Christ is now made clear and bright after Christ. What was formerly veiled has now, through the preaching of the gospel, been brought to light. Now we can open the pages. This is the amazing thing. We can open the pages of the Old Testament writers. What I'm not saying is, well, now we have the New Testament. Let's just take that Old Testament and ball that thing up, put it on the floor, kick it like a soccer ball into the trash. No! Because now, as Paul says here, we can go to the pages of the Old Testament writers, the prophetic writings, and there, after the coming of Christ and the giving of the Spirit, and in light of the apostolic preaching, we see the glory of Christ shining everywhere in those same writings. Once veiled, now on display, the veil has been Removed, and the gospel is marching on and taking root. And the timing, the timing belongs to God. Galatians 4, 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Now, we really have no way of knowing the fullness of what's packed into that. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Why did God send Christ when he did? Uh, the, the myriad of answers are, are unknown to us. But it's interesting to me from a merely historical perspective. When we look at ancient history, two of the most important figures in ancient history are Alexander the Great and Octavian or Augustus Caesar. These are two of the most important figures in the history of the ancient world. And what's fascinating is that had Alexander the Great not come and conquered as he did, the Greek language and the Greek culture would not have abounded as it did in the Mediterranean world all over the place, where even in Judea, even in Palestine, people are speaking 
Greek. And then, of course, you, got, you have this one language, this one culture where Christ can come into and the gospel can spread. And then you've got Augustus and the way in which he unifies the empire and solidifies its internal structure. And he, he, he creates roads and he uh, creates a, a, a safe environment for travel, safer than it had ever been. One unified system called Rome. And it is into this world with one unified culture and language, with one unified structure for travel and system of roads that God sends his Christ and the preaching of the gospel. There's Paul writing in Greek all over the Mediterranean world, walking along Roman roads to Roman cities. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, The plan, the timing, the revelation and majesty of the gospel, its presence in the Old Testament, all of this leads Paul to one word in verse 27. Wise. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me just say this to us. It's a basic point, but it has to be constantly Uh, we have to be constantly reminded of it. If God is wise enough to carry out this plan, okay, if God is wise enough to do all that he has done in salvation history, if God is indeed sovereign and eternal, then why don't we trust him? You know, worry is a lack of trust in God. That's what it is. I remember, I've said this before, uh, it, years ago, so worry and anxiety has been something that I have struggled with in my life and do struggle with in, in various ways. And there was a book, uh, there was a period in particular where I was just really looking for something that would, would help me out. And there was a book by John MacArthur called Anxious for Nothing. And in the introduction to that book, that book was life-changing for me, and in the introduction to that book, MacArthur said something that no one had ever said before. I had never read it before. This is what he said. Worry is sin. And what do you do with sin? You repent of it. That was life-changing for me. Because up to that point, you, you were a victim. I'm a victim of worry. I'm a victim of anxiety. And of course, we recognize that there are a whole host of of issues medically and so forth, and those things are things that we discuss. There are nuances here, but what we need to understand is that the choice to worry is a choice not to trust in the living, wise God. It is a choice not to bank all on him. It is a choice to make these things idols above him. How many hours of life are you spending worrying about things that you can entrust into the hands of this wise God? How many moments with your children are wasted Because you're worrying about something at work or something in your bank account or what's going to happen tomorrow. Trust the Lord. Trust in his wisdom. If he can plan out history, I'm sure he can take care of our little lives, our little tiny problems, our little, little lives. You know, I've said this before, but... It's amazing how just, if you're, if you're I've, I've had moments where I'm just worrying or whatever, and I'll go outside and look up into the sky and see all the stars, and you just think, man, what in the world? You just have to see yourself small. Worry, it takes over when we see ourselves big. And when we see ourselves big, we see our problems big, and then we look up into the heavens, and we see these amazing stars. Better yet, look into the word of God and see the infinite God who made the heavens who made these glorious stars. Trust in him, people of God. Our third third point this morning, or the third aspect of Paul's, or part of Paul's praise, as we finish up Romans this morning, is all glory to the God who calls sinners. 
Look at verse 26 again. Paul says that this gospel, this now revealed mystery, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So all glory to the God who can establish us and all glory to the God who controls history, but all glory to the God who calls sinners like us. This really does bring us back to where we began in Romans. What is the gospel anyway? What is it? Chapter 1, verse 16. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is not something merely to be understood. It is not merely something to be understood or to be studied or to marvel at or to defend The gospel is power. It is power. It's not a mere cerebral thing. It's not a mere intellectual thing. It is the power of God for saving sinners. It is the means of salvation. This eternal, only wise God is the one who justifies the ungodly. He calls sinners. He doesn't say, go clean your life up. And once your hands are clean, and once everything is nice and tucked away and tight, once you're squared away, then come and I'll receive you. No, this is the God who goes out into the byways and highways and calls sinners to be his children. He justifies the ungodly. Christ was sent to bear our sin. Christ took our place on the cross. And then he rose again to life. Christ removes the guilt and the power of sin for those who believe in him. Christ makes us right with God and fills us with his spirit. That is the power of God in us. The gospel goes to all the nations and sinners who are hopeless and without God in the world. Imagine that. That's the way Ephesians 2 verse 12, that's the way Paul describes the Gentiles as he's writing to the Ephesians. He says, that's who you were. Your ancestors, that's who they were. Hopeless and without God in the world. Is there any more pitiful description than that? These are coming to trust in Christ and submit to his lordship. Praise God that we here, Gentiles largely, are worshiping Christ. The miracle of that. Romans 9 through 11 should give you a sense of the miracle of that. And not to take that for granted. That we Gentiles are here praising the God of Israel. We are praising the God of Abraham, Isaac, And Jacob, God has done this great thing, this great work. He has done it for us. God has constructed this unfathomably wise and intricate plan. God has saved and is saving sinners. So here, this last sermon on Romans, this this note about the salvation of sinners. If you're here this morning and you've been coming for a while, you're not a Christian, hear this gospel message. Put your trust in Christ. Put your trust in this Christ who was put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Put your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of this Christ for the forgiveness of sins and newness of life and life to come forever with God. As verse 27 says, all praise to God is through this Christ. We do not worship a generic God. We worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are Christians. God has chosen to show his glory through Christ, and it is only through submitting to him in faith that we can be saved. Notice the language, the obedience. That is our faith, to bring about the obedience of faith. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you've bought into a false gospel. You've bought into a gospel that just says, hey, uh, 
pray, pray and ask Jesus into your heart, period. Just, just believe in Jesus, period. We need to understand this morning that, that packed into the notion of faith is the notion of bowing to King Christ. It is the notion of bowing to the Lordship of Christ. He is never Savior where he is not Lord. He is our Lord and Savior. So if you're looking to him as Savior, but he is not your Lord, you know him not as Savior. So trust in him today as both one and the same. Everything we cling to in this world will perish. But there is one thing that will last forever. All those things you're pursuing and I'm pursuing, all those, all those idols of our hearts, all those things that we live for and think about, spend our time mulling over, meditating on, all those things are gonna perish. Our little lives are gonna perish. They're a breath, they're a vapor, they're a fading flower. Who, who among us has not heard someone older say, man, it feels like yesterday, dot, dot, dot. We've all heard that. I've heard that all my life just goes by so fast our lives will perish and all the things we pursue but to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ amen the glory the glory of God through Christ That's what lasts forever. And the glory of God through Christ on our lips, in in the hearts of our souls, in, in our new bodies, that is what lasts forever. Everything else perishes. Everything else fades away. That alone is worth giving your life to. That alone is of eternal value. May this glory and this glory alone be our fixation, both now and as it will be in the age to come. Fix your eyes here. Order your life here. Prioritize your schedule Here, may each of our lives be a living, breathing doxology, a praise to the only wise God to whom all glory is due through Jesus Christ forevermore. And as we see this gospel going out to all the nations, bringing about the obedience of faith, we are reminded of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God comes to Abraham and he promises that all the families of the earth through him would be blessed. And then in chapter 22, after he goes to take Isaac to sacrifice him and God says, stop, no, but to ram in his place, God says to him, through your offspring, singular offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Blessed. We have come now for the last two years to see the fullness and fruition of all that God had promised Abraham there in chapter 12, verse 3. And in a few weeks, we will come back to that story, to those early days of biblical history where we see the children of Jacob and the descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob as they are in Egypt and as God comes to them rescues them just as he has rescued you, Christian, just as he has rescued me. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your plan. We praise you for the depth of your grace. We thank you for the gospel for your eternal glory. 
We thank you, Father, that we will glorify you forever. Though often we fail to glorify you in this life, we will be a testament to your glory in the ages to come. We praise you, God, for what you have taught us in Romans. We ask that you would help us to continue to meditate on this gospel and these words of Paul by your Spirit in the years and decades to come. These words would be on our hearts and on our minds when we depart even this life to go to the next. We praise you. Thank you for the Lord's Supper that we're about to, uh, about to celebrate. I pray that you would be with us as we commune with your Son and with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.